want to welcome you once again. We're thankful that you're able to join us. Again, we're separated for our time. But by God's grace, we're still a church family. And we have this opportunity to worship him through the study of his word. You may be getting tired. You may uh, be hurting in a variety of ways. You may be strengthened uh, through this time. Wherever you're at, we want you to know that we're, we're praying for you. We are here for you if you have questions or would just like to talk. We, in the name of Christ, love you and trust that God's grace and God's mercies rest upon you. So thank you once again for joining us. And today we're going to be looking at a subject entitled Submission, Slavery, and Suffering from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 25. So I'll read that for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseers, overseer of your souls. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for the church. And we give you thanks for the church that goes through challenges. Father, we know that you are our shepherd. You are our overseer, just as you are over all your people in all nations. We thank you for gathering us together once again as a Grace Bible Church family to be able to study your word. And we pray that you may impact our hearts. We pray that you may, we may experience your love by your spirit, through your word. And in turn, we pray that we might be those who love others well. We continue to pray for those ruling over us, the various levels of government. Lord, we pray that you would guide them. Lord willing, next week we'll talk about relationships. So we pray for relationships. And today we pray for those who are in a position of suffering unjustly. Lord, help us to wrestle through this meaningful subject. And Father, we want to pray that you would grant us a sense of peace during this time, a sense of your rest. And may we love you well, may we obey you well, and may we journey well. In the name of Jesus, amen. 
Today we're going to be looking at what Peter says to household slaves. And as we've mentioned, we've entitled it Submission, Slavery, and Suffering. We've been talking about submission the last few weeks, and today we're going to apply it to slavery and also to suffering. I think two questions come up. The first question immediately when we talk about slavery is, what did slavery look like back in Peter's day? When we think about slavery, we don't often understand it in its New Testament context, but we think of slavery in its North American context. In the unspeakable horrors of slavery on this continent and others, slaves were bought and sold based on race and color. This was a despicable violation of God's created order under the cruel master of racism. When we come to the New Testament um, context of slavery, Timothy Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work, gives a helpful footnote. If you want to reference it, it's footnote 201, 201. And this is what he says. What did slavery look like in Peter's day? Quote, the modern reader winces at the words slaves and masters, largely because we immediately think only of the modern African slave trade in which slavery was race-based, lifelong, and based on kidnapping. However, in the ancient world, there were many slaveries. There is good evidence that much of slavery was very harsh and brutal. But there is also lots of evidence that many slaves were not treated like African slaves would be, but lived normal lives and were paid the going wage, but were not allowed to quit or change employers and were in slavery an average of 10 years. A person could become a slave for a set period of time in order to work off debts because there was no such thing as bankruptcy in ancient times. Often the result was an indentured, that is a legal agreement, a contract, servanthood for years until the debts were paid. To our surprise, slaves could own slaves, and many slaves were doctors, professors, administrators, and civil servants, unquote. That gives us an idea of what slavery looked like in the time of the New Testament in Peter's day, which is followed by the question, why does the Bible not speak out against slavery? Why does the Bible not write to abolish the evil practice of slavery? Well, there's many reasons for this, and I don't want to simplify it too much, but I just want to read another quote from the famous 201 quote from Timothy Keller's book, where he quotes Miroslav Volf's book, Public Faith, How Followers of Christ should serve the common good. He says that this kind of teaching so transforms the master-servant relationship. The teaching that you read about slavery and masters in the, New Te- in, in the Bible, this, this kind of teaching from the Bible, the master-servant relationship, that while it is still there in form, the servant is still to work for his employer. Slavery has been abolished even if its outer institutional shell remains. 
This is this, of course, undermined and weakened the institution of slavery among Christians very quickly. So that it was emptied of its inner content until eventually it was discarded. Later, the institution of race-based kidnapping fueled slavery in the New World was so out of accord with biblical principles that Christians led the fight to have slavery abolished. What is that quote saying? That quote is saying that the Bible and the gospel undeniably stands against all forms of slavery. And what the Bible says about slavery to individuals, both masters and slaves, is revolutionary. And if followed the teachings of Scripture, the whole system of slavery would die. The Bible works from the inside out and destroys a system that itself destroyed dignity and the personhood that God created for all people. It is why racism is so vile, so cruel, and God's people should be on the front lines for the value of all life for all people built on the foundation found in the principles of the great gospel of Jesus, which would destroy the concept of inequality and slavery. We could go to other passages that speak about 1 Corinthians chapter, that speak in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. Paul said, if you can become free from slavery, take the opportunity. Paul also writes a letter to Philemon. He was a, he was a slave owner. And his slave ran away, Onesimus, and uh, he became saved. And so when Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, he says this in verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. One of the strongest statements that Paul says there is equality in the value of humanity. Welcome him as you would welcome me. The way that the Bible speaks about slavery essentially dest- destroys the concept of slavery. And that's why you read of men like Wilberforce who worked years and years to destroy slavery. Well, we could talk a lot more about that, but that is a picture of New Testament slavery and how the Bible deals with slavery. So we come back to the question, so what does Peter say to slaves submitting to their masters who are suffering? Submission, slavery, and suffering. Remember the circumstances even within Scripture might be different. For example, Peter, Paul, when he writes in Ephesians, he can address Christian masters. Peter doesn't even address masters. In fact, he talks about cruel masters because Peter was writing in a time of persecution and many would have been suffering under cruel masters. Some would have had kind and gentle masters, but there were those who suffered under cruel masters. So we might think the best way to summarize our text this morning is to say something like slaves who submit may be called to suffer. Slaves who submit may be called to suffer. And that would be a good summary of our text. But I think it's summarized even more clearly in just two words. Trust God. What is Peter saying to slaves who are in submission to their masters who may suffer? Trust God. The gospel, based on the example and the work of Jesus Christ that we read of in verses 21 through 25, calls us to suffer, but not to suffer without hope. 
to suffer with hope as we trust in God? It's a very difficult question. I know we may be sitting on comfy couches in her pajamas with a coffee in our hand, and we might be uncomfortable with this question. But it really is an uncomfortable question that takes place. Will we trust God even when he calls us to suffer injustice? Will we hope and trust in God even when we're called to suffer unjustly and not return insult for insult and when we are threatened to entrust ourselves to to God? It's a heart-searching question. So let's take a look at it. First of all, trust God in unjust suffering. We're called to trust God in unjust suffering. In other words, verse 18 is the principle that Peter works with. Verse 18, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. Peter calls believing slaves to submit to their masters. Now, you can imagine the slaves talking among themselves, the household slaves speaking among themselves, and they're saying, man, I'm just so thankful. I have a a kind and good and gentle master. But then you can imagine others who are saying, my master, he's cruel. He's cruel. What do we do, Paul? And so what, or Peter, what do we do, Peter? Peter takes the best circumstances and he takes the worst circumstances, and he says, even in the worst circumstances, we are called to submit even in unjust suffering. The word cruel means an unjust master, one who physically mistreats their slaves, those who are dishonest regarding pay or working, conditions or even expectations of what is to be done. They are crooked, literally crooked, dishonest, morally evil, and causing their slaves to suffer deeply and as they are treated inhumanely. And so what does Peter say? Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence. I believe the all reverence that Peter is talking about is not, first of all, to masters, although they were to revere, fear their masters in a healthy way, but it is, first of all, a reverence to God. In the book of Peter, every time we read of the word fear, it's towards God. That is why he's saying Peter begins with God. We might think the main subject is masters and slaves, believers and unbelievers. But the main subject as in this scripture or in this scripture as in all of scripture is God. Peter points those who will suffer and say, you first of all need to fear God. You need to know what it is to have reverence before the greatness and awesomeness of God. I think one of the best examples of this is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, where he says, we will all suffer, and we will all suffer unjustly. He'll also talk about that in chapter 4 and chapter 5. But listen to this question that we referred to a number of weeks ago, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, who then will harm you if you are devoted to good? Will you suffer for doing good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. You know what Peter does? Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. If we were to go back to chapter 8, we would read Isaiah writing about the coming Assyrians who would bring the people of God into captivity. And listen to what Peter quotes. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 11 says this, For this is what the Lord said to me with great power to keep me from going the way of this people. 
In other words, Isaiah is right. I, he's, this is what God did, so I didn't um, sin like the people of Israel did. Verse 12, do not call everything a conspiracy. These people say it's a conspiracy. Actually, very appropriate words for today. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. Peter quotes and he says, when you're going to suffer for doing good, even though you're devoted to good, don't fear what other people fear. Instead, what should we fear? Verse 13, Isaiah chapter 8. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. You are to reverence God. He goes on to say, only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. When Peter says, with all reverence to God, as we submit to cruel masters, Peter says, understand that the Lord is awesome. He is to be held in awe. He is the Lord of armies. And we will see a bit later that he judges justly. He lifts the slaves' eyes off of their masters and says, who is the master of this universe? Who is the king of all kings? Who sees all things? Who cares for you that we'll see a bit later? Who cares for you? Reverence God. Fear God. God is the main player in this story. He's the main player in our story. And it would be foolishness not to point them to the sovereignty of God. His dominating presence. The one who is to be feared, to be trusted, to be followed, and to be admired. And to be feared in the believer's case is to be overwhelmed with the presence of God. Peter is saying to the slaves with this very difficult news, you need to trust God as you walk in holiness with integrity, doing what is right in all your circumstance, including suffering. If that is the main principle, then Peter goes on to speak and he says, trust God to please God. In fact, the rest of the... The principle is found in verse 18. Verses 19 through 25, Peter gives two primary reasons why we can trust God. In other words, this is the reason or the motivation to trust God. Why are we to trust God? Why can we trust God? Why can we reverence God, fear God? Well, we trust God because we want to please God. God is pleased when we trust him even in painful times. God is pleased even when we trust him in painful times. The first thing that we see is that Peter wants to make it abundantly clear that he is actually talking about suffering. Look at verse 19. For it brings favor if, that, that thought will be followed up at the end of verse 20. For it brings favor if, because of the consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. Unjustly. Peter's just making it clear. The word grief there is pain, sorrow, a mental anguish that accompanies unjust suffering. And then he goes on to give an example in verse 20, a very real example for these slaves. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? What happens when you're beaten? Well, if you endure it because you do wrong, then what is the credit? But, here's the other um, statement, but when you do what is good and suffer, when you're beaten for doing what is good. So why do we trust God in those moments? Why did Peter say to the slaves, you must trust God in those moments? And it can seem, we can seem so removed and distant. 
But the, the language is raw. You can imagine these slaves being beaten or remembering being beaten. And Peter is not, um, he's not evading the question. He's saying, this is raw. This is actually what's taking place. But what do you do? Why, what motivates you even though you do good and suffer? If you endure it. So if he's clear about suffering, then he's clear why we suffer. He's clear why we suffer. What is the great motivation? Well, he says at the beginning of verse 19, because of a consciousness of God. Remember, we talked about the fear of God or the reverence of God, the reverence of God. It, Peter, all Peter's doing in these verses is he's letting us get to know who God is so we can trust him. God is a God to be feared. And so we have this consciousness of God. We have this sense of God in our heart. We have the presence of God, not only by his spirit, but in our mind as we know about God and in our experience as we experience the love of God and the person of God. The reverence leads to a consciousness of God. A consciousness of God is the presence of God, to know the power of God, to trust in the protection of God which then follows through after that raw example of a slave being beaten, says at the end, if you endure it, if you endure it, in other words, Peter's not being callous about this. Peter understands that it is suffering and it is deep suffering and it is painful suffering and it is suffering that, that, that's hard to get to, hard to understand. It is that type of suffering. He says, if you endure this, this brings favor to God. A reverence for God leads to a consciousness of God, which then leads to a desire to be in favor with God. It leads to a desire to serve God, serve in the favor of God. In other words, he says, God is pleased when you suffer for doing good. Now that's hard for us to understand, and it really is only understood in the context of verses 21 through 25 and the the example that Jesus sets as he suffers for us. But Peter comes along and he says, listen, if you endure this, if you endure this, this is hard. This brings favor with God. I was listening to a podcast this past week on suffering and just this one line struck me as I was running. He says, imagine the person in the world that you praise and admire the most and then imagine that person praising you. Can you think of a person that maybe you have lived your entire life for and you just wanted to hear one word of praise. I'm proud of you. Well done. Good work. I'm glad you're there. I want to encourage you. And you admire that person. How much would that feed you? How much would that energize you? How much would that spur you on so that you endure what you cannot humanly endure in yourself? And that's what's being used here. This isn't, we might say, well, is, isn't there more? But listen to the words of Peter. This brings favor with God. This is God. The one who we worship and admire the most, looking down on those slaves who were suffering. And he said, I praise you for what you're doing. Well done my good and faithful servant. I honor you. I respect you. In fact, the word there is grace. I joy with you. I have pleasure in you. 
I give grace, I give favor as I delight in this relationship with you. You see, it's so easy to fall into a self-centered lifestyle and we wrestle with this. We would much rather have our comfort than to be disturbed. But Paul says we are called, Peter says we're called to suffer and we're called to have a lifestyle of obedience, a lifestyle of honoring all, a lifestyle of serving the family of God in love as we read earlier, and a lifestyle that we are called to suffer as Christ has suffered. And God comes along and he says, well done. We're reminded of this in chapter one, verses six and seven. You may remember these words, you rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. These slaves, these household slaves were suffering grief in various trials. And so what does Paul say? Or Paul, I'm having trouble with Paul and Peter this morning, apparently. If Peter says, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith. Why does God delight in you? because you begin to see your faith lived out in action. There's many times where you can say, God, I disappointed you. But this is one place where God looks down and says, this is the obedience of your faith. You have proven character, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You honor God and he honors you. You suffer for the praise of God. It's something like we'll talk about when uh, wives go through difficult times with their unbelieving husbands. And Peter basically says, who knows in your silence and, and gentle spirit if he won't become a believer. And so when a slave is suffering for doing good, who knows if it won't turn the heart of a master or another slave or those around him because it's bringing glory and honor to God. That's how it pleases God. We shine the faith that we have and our faith essentially reverences God, fears God, has this conscience of consciousness of God that desires to delight God. And that becomes our story. And it becomes a bigger story than our suffering, that there is a God who delights in us. And we continue to confess the name of God even in suffering. So we can trust God to please God. And then finally in verses 20 through 25, we can trust God to follow the footsteps of Jesus. We trust God, the main principle being, trust God in unjust suffering. And then the first motivation or reason for suffering is to please God, to hear from God that this brings favor with God. But we also trust God to follow the footsteps of Jesus. And really, we need verses 21 through 25. Suffering makes so little sense. We often want to accuse God of unjust suffering or why are we suffering? But a large part of that answer is found in the suffering of Jesus. God does not call you to suffer without himself ha not having gone through suffering. In fact, the suffering of Christ is so deep and so awful that he would bear your sins to the cross and he would suffer the darkness and the wrath of God so that you might be set free to live. And just as Jesus entrusted himself to an almighty God, 
so also we can learn to entrust ourselves to an almighty God, reverencing him as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. The cross makes sense of the call to suffer. In fact, that's what we read. Verse 21, this is part of your calling. When you signed up for Christianity, when you became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ over whatever time period or a certain time or day, you were called to suffer. You were called to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Look at verse 21. For you were called to this, to what? To suffering, to what? To, to find favor with God in your suffering because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example. You were called to this because suffering was part of the life of Christ. He suffered for you. And as he suffered for you, we will suffer for the cause of Christ. We will suffer for the glory of God. Whether it's slavery, whether it's living in an unjust society, under an unjust government, whether it's health and strength, whatever God's calling may be upon you to suffer. And again, it doesn't take away, just as if we're suffering health, it doesn't take away that God gives provisions to, 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 for human responsibility and to take things that will make us healthier, lead a healthy lifestyle. Or even like we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that if a slave can be set free, be set free. It's not some sort of um, um, sadistic pleasure of God. But it is the realities of living in a sinful world. Suffering was part of the life of Christ. He suffered for you. He bore your sin. He bore my sin. Not his. He suffered to glorify God. We are to walk foot in foot with him. Follow in his footsteps. And you remember as a kid, you did connect the dots. One, two, three, four. And then it drew some sort of picture. Then you'd color it in. Hopefully within the lines. And hopefully the picture made sense. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Dot to dot, to dot. So the question becomes, what is the example that Jesus set? What is the example that Jesus set? That's found in verses 23 through 25. Practically, what example? How, how were slaves to live under the submission of their masters, even though they may suffer? How are you to live under difficult employment, under a difficult boss, or how are you called to live as you follow the example of Christ as you suffer unjustly? As you don't understand the reason why certain things are happening in your life. Peter gives three examples from the life of Christ that we follow in his footsteps. The first example is the example of integrity. Verse 22, how are slaves to live? How are we to live in our places of employment? How are we to live in an unjust world? We're to seek to live with integrity. What Peter does actually in verses 22 through 25 is he takes Isaiah 53 and verses from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is, is a passage about the suffering of Christ. It, it's, it, it, it unveils in, in awful horror the suffering that Christ would go through. And so he takes one of the most vulnerable passages of the Old Testament. He says, here's Christ and his suffering. And then that becomes the backbone of verses 22 through 25. And he says, the first thing is, Jesus did not commit sin. That's what it is to reverence God. That's what it is to have a consciousness of God, to desire to follow God in obedience. Jesus' perfect obedience. 
And then he gives this example. And no deceit, Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 53, and no deceit was found in his mouth. We're to live in obedience to the word of God. We're to live with integrity. No deceit. Jesus lived to honor God. No deceit was found in his mouth. I'm going to share a paragraph that I wrote because I think this is challenging, especially for the North American church. Because sometimes we view this passage as a passage where we will suffer, and we will suffer. It is part of the calling of a believer's life. You will read of that in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. It is just the reality of what Peter was writing in the Christian life. But I also want to try to understand whether it's an individual or a church of integrity that we can be those who are the cruel masters. Who don't listen well to the oppressed. Who don't see well into our culture and pretend everything's fine and never have anything to say about those who are going through modern day slavery. The church is never a pretty place. It's filled with mess. But if a church turns inward and just deals with its own mess, then it hasn't fulfilled the calling that God's called it to fulfill. We have this great commission. And part of it is not just to share the good news of Jesus Christ, but to care for communities and to care for cities and to be the voice of justice and to be the voice of righteousness and to be the voice of mercy. May the church not only fight against injustice, but may the church itself not be the cruel master. Sometimes by oppression and sometimes by neglect. Our culture and in some ways our churches are not exempt from cruelty. The way that some people talk about unbelievers and their struggles or their sin. Some in our culture live under masters that are cruel. One example is the sex slavery that happens in Canada and around the world. It's happening in our country. It is cruel. There are physical and emotional pressure. There is economic injustice. Women and men are deprived of basic human dignity, such as respect and worth, created in the image of God. Or we could think of people groups or those who are within our nations who have been suppressed, suffering under cruel systems of oppression. We can think in our own country of the First Nations. We think of the persecuted church around the world. Or we think of those around us and never having met them or heard their story, we speak unkindly. We become those cruel masters where if they were to come up and speak to us, they would hear, hear cruel words and be cast out. But is the church a place of welcome? That even as Jesus suffered and bore our sins with integrity, we would live with integrity, we would love with integrity, and we would be filled with justice and mercy and righteousness, and we would seek to be a voice for the oppressed. Is the church a cruel master? 
Someone walks in just filled with shame and they do not hear the healing words of Jesus that not only are their sins forgiven, but they are at peace and God has removed their shame. Maybe we need to read this passage not as the sufferer, but the one who causes suffering. And I'm thinking of my own heart and I'm thinking of the prosperous church of North America. If we are to be an example of integrity, we are also to be an example of faith. Verse 23, an example of faith, or Jesus gave the example of faith. Listen to verse 23, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Do you know how many marriages would be healed with just that one verse? You know how many workplaces would, would just, you know how many churches, how many relationships would be brought back together? When Jesus was insulted, and Jesus was insulted, he didn't insult back. When Jesus was treated harshly, when he suffered, what did he do? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The truth is we often don't judge justly. We judge with ulterior motives. We judge because someone has stepped into our little kingdom and rearranged the kitchen cupboards and we don't like that. Jesus comes and he sets the example when he was mistreated, he suffered. Now, he, he wasn't a doormat, and we're not called to be a doormat. And so all this is taken with wisdom and worked through, through the word and by the spirit. But the general principle remains the same. Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Often healing comes not through my ability to solve issues but it comes through honoring everyone, loving our brothers and sisters, and entrusting judgment to God. What a relief that would have been for the slaves. God will look after this. God will look after this. And then finally, we read not only the example of integrity and the example of faith that even as Jesus, in his perfect trust, entrusted himself to the one who judges justly so we can entrust ourselves to God as well, but there is the example of a new life. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He suffered. That is the depth of suffering that Jesus went through. So that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. What is Peter talking about? Peter is talking about not just the forgiveness of sins, but the power given over sin. We are set free. Imagine the slaves hearing this. We are set free to live for righteousness. This is the hope that we have. This is the hope of a new life. A, a believer will live with different virtues, with faith, hope, love, integrity, trust, knowing that God cares for them. We might live for righteousness. As we've said, we spend so much time living, fighting, protecting our kingdoms, causing so much pain. But Jesus has died to give us a new kingdom. 
His wounds bring healing. Did you see that? By his wounds, you have been healed. In some of the grossest miscarriages of justice, in some of the greatest suffering, God brings the believer through. And while all that is taking place, healing is happening. Do you believe that? I don't think I'd believe that in the middle of it all. But that's what the wounds of Christ brought, healing. We're not very good doctors to perform on ourselves. But Jesus is the great physician. And in the mysterious ways of God, in some of the deepest and darkest moments, the greatest healing is taking place because you are drawn into the presence of God. And then as if we needed more encouragement, Peter finishes with verse 25, for you were sheep going astray. We know we were sheep going astray. We know we were a mess. We know we were sinners. We know we didn't have our life together. And we know we couldn't put our life together. So what does Jesus say, or what does God say about himself? But you, now, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What is taking place while the slave is suffering? He has a shepherd. He has a shepherd who cares, who provides, who causes him to lie down in green pastures, who journeys with him through the valley of the shadow of death. And even though surrounded by his enemies, provides a banquet table of healing and of goodness. Jesus is the great shepherd to the suffering slaves. But he's not only the great shepherd, but he's the overseer. He is the great protector. He is the one who will bring justice. And if not today, and if not tomorrow, and if not even in our own lifetime, one day he will return and he will judge the living and the dead. He is our shepherd. He is our overseer. And he is the one who governs our lives according to his will to bring purposes that we may not understand, but bring the purpose at least to glorify his name and have this conscience of God that he is the great healer in our life. This has been a difficult matter, but I trust we see that Peter helps us to submit, to suffer, even though we might be in very difficult places like slavery under cruel masters. But in all of this, we have Jesus who gives the example of integrity, gives the example of faith, and then who gives the example of a new life. You have been set free. You are no longer slaves to sin. But as we were reminded in verse 16, submit as free people not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. These slaves were free people as they served God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for a difficult passage, but thank you for being so encouraging, so instructive. And so now we pray for that life of righteousness and the suffering that you may be calling us through, that we might be those with integrity and faith and understanding that we have the shepherd and overseer of our souls to lead us through these times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you once again for joining us. I was encouraged this past week because a number of people whom I spoke to talked about how people have ministered to them. Whether it's meals, whether it's a phone call, whether it's just reaching out and praying with people. There's a lot of that that's taking place in the GBC family. Can you do that? Can you reach out? Can you call someone today or drop off a meal or whatever it might be, just to be an encouragement so that you can love the brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are loved. And we look forward to the time when we can come back together to meet and to worship once again. But until that day, God, he's good. He's gracious. And he's kind.